Hello citizens, it's another outfit bonus bonus where we respond to your questions and comments as well as put out some bonus content which you'll hear at the end of this. So the date is Sunday the 18th of October. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare who are in the UK. Hi guys. Hey, what's up? Hey, I'm coming to you from Shepparton, the home of J.G. Ballard. Nice. Is it, uh, is it, it, it I was going to say, is it exotic, but it's the opposite of exotic. I mean, that's the whole point, right? It is. It is. It drowned. It's, it's in its own way exotic um, yeah. and it's very nice and autumnal. So, yeah. yeah. It's, gonna, it's not going to end well if it is like a Ballardian ending here, George. You know that, right? Well, <laughs> I've read a lot of the start of his books and they all, they all start off quite fine. Did, did you eat, have, have you eaten did your you mother-in-law's with, dog? <laughs> yeah, the high rise doesn't begin well, George, either. So. <laughs> well, it depends on your on the way you want to live your life, I guess. Um, but no, it's, it is it is an, not... If anybody's been to Shepparton, it's not the sort of place you'd expect somebody like Ballard to have lived, but that's the where would you have expected That's the point. We did a whole episode on this, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, people might not have listened to that episode. Did you listen to it? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. And I was on it as well, I believe. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, today we're going to respond to your points from September and October, which we've collected from Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Patreon. Uh, and then at the end of that, you'll hear some bonus content from our interview with Benjamin Moser, who's the author of, so- of the Sontag biography, for which he won a Pulitzer this year. Um, and so it's a little bit of bonus content that we recorded with him. That's at the end of uh, at the end of this. Before that, though, we wanted to start by discussing the beheading of a teacher in France who showed his pupils uh, one of the you know, famous cartoons uh, published by the Danish newspaper back in 2005 um, in a um, in a class about free speech. So, guys, over to you. Well, I suppose it was, um, it was. Uh, I, f- I guess I have to say I found it genuinely upsetting um, for all the terrible news in the world. You know, I mean, there's so many bad things happening. I was surprised by myself at how upset I was by it, um, mainly because it was so, I mean, so pointless. You know, this poor guy is just doing his job. And as the report suggests, he, he you know gave permission to the Muslim students in the class to leave, which even then seems to me somewhat def, you know kind of um, defeating the purpose of having a class in free speech. But hey ho, anyway, um, poor guy is doing his job and is not only kind of killed for it, but in the most gruesome and public way, with all the um, with all the kind of paraphernalia of um, conservative religious parents kind of legitimating it through their protests. And then the most shocking thing of all, at least in the UK, I mean, there's been a different reaction in France, which I've been following through um, people who read French better than I do. Um, But in the UK, barely, barely any kind of extension of support from the organizations and people you think would be most directly affected by this, which is to say academics, educators, teachers, the National Education Union posted a feeble kind of comment on Twitter about it being a sad day, as if, you know, I don't know, as if it had been a, a flood in a minor provincial town or something like that, rather than something that implicated every educator everywhere. Um, yeah. And I suppose what hit me so strongly about it was because as, you know, as an academic and being in the classroom, it's very easy to imagine yourself um, constructing a controversy in class. I mean, you do it frequently. And so the idea that kind of going through, you know, just doing rehearsing these very basic pedagogic exercises would be um, sufficient to condemn you to death. 
and that nobody, nobody within your um, professional circles or associations would immediately condemn it or see it as a threat against them because it was unnecessarily offensive or egregious to a particular community. It was just um, outrageous. And once again, yeah. I suppose, deeply revealing. Yeah, no, I think that's, I don't have all, all that much to add. Just that there's two, you know, two things about it. One, it's, you know, barbaric, medieval, just completely disgusting. Um, and then it's also depressing in the sense that it probably does reveal, at least in in the UK, it's kind of a litmus test. And there's, it seems like there is pretty lukewarm support for free speech in the academy. And you can think there might be a number of different reasons f for this, you know, maybe a lack of self-confidence in the profession, you know, where are the teaching unions coming out and saying we need to have a, um, as Lee Phillips taking the idea from Phil on, on Twitter said, you know, come out with a big program of, of free speech classes and that should be the next week's teaching you know that's that is it obviously is that important um but yeah it just seems like the the free speech is not a um, really at the top of the the list of of values that um the, the academy defends you know where are all the liberals that that at least once upon a time could have been relied on for for defending free speech in a in a million way at least yeah um, yeah pretty pretty dark day no, I mean, I think it's remarkable that, you know, the way that this is often treated or is the way that the left used to respond to terrorist attacks before and go, well, but it's just an isolated incident. Let's not get too carried away. Um, this is just the, the, the behavior or not just terrorist attacks, actually. I mean, any kind of random killing. Um, you know, I think it's right to say, well, you know, these are random events. You can't just try to say that this is part of a wider trend because it's just some madman acting in such and such a way. Um, but obviously there is a trend here and it's and it's clearly encouraged by uh, liberals weakness in defending free speech and in, and in being trying to toe around uh, Islam, Islamist or, you know, Muslim sensitivities um, in, in the way of trying to kind of sustain a sort of multicultural we're all in it together uh, sort of feeling, um, but not defending the essential values that they actually need to. Uh, and, and I think the response to this is always a sort of yes, but like, yes, of course, it's gruesome. We don't defend that. But, you know, was it really necessary? Was it so provocative, you know, such a, to do such a provocative thing uh, to offend people that way? Is it really necessary? And I think if, if we had a context in which all liberals came out to condemn, uh, or rather all liberals uh, defended free speech, absolutely, um, then you could make a criticism and say, well, you know, maybe the cartoons, you know, thinking back to 2005, uh, the cartoons were a bit uh, naff, or they made, some of them were bad taste, and maybe it is a bit of punching down yeah. because, you know, Islamists aren't in power in the West, so why are you going after that instead of those who are really uh, in authority? But the fact is, is that every time the liberals react in this way in trying to kind of shield Muslim sensitivities and thereby not defend free speech, um, they necessitate a defense of the cartoons and for this sort of provocativeness, precisely because uh, they establish this sort of, um, you know, this kind of wall around or try to recreate a blasphemy, blasphemy as a moral crime. And therefore, it justifies actually mm. being provocative uh, in the way that these cartoons were. Um, and I, without even coming on to the question why, of, go on, yeah. Well, it's also why this was so depressing. I mean, um, you know, Charlie Hebdo, the magazine which was attacked by Islamists, it's, you know, notorious for its reputation of seeking out controversy and provocation. 
um, this was a teacher who was talking about yeah. the issue itself. You know, I mean, it's so it's so small scale and sad and pathetic that um, a classroom isn't, you know, a classroom isn't safe from uh, what I presume, you know, would have been a fairly kind of this and th- on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that kind of discussion. Um, judging by all the reports and, you know, the reputation yeah. of the teacher, well-liked, respected, professional. Um, I mean, that's what's so appalling about all of this, you know, like it's not even... It, it's so secondhand as well. I mean, this young Chechen man yeah. who decides to be head of teacher, it's like, what, well, you're trying to... Like, or, or it was already so depraved and pathetic, the killing of uh, the cartoonist of Charlie Hebdo, and then to then go and repeat it over an even slighter offense. It's just, yeah, it's somehow like it's gruesome and horrible, yeah. but also really tawdry and, and pathetic. Yeah, absolutely. a cartoon. It was a fucking cartoon. I mean, it's just so. I mean, yeah, watch I out, Ben Garrison, because you know that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, shall we move on to responding to uh, listeners' questions and comments, and especially the criticisms? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're going to start with some general ones, which uh, we've received over the past two months. Uh, Vulcan says, uh, in response to the last Alpha Bonus bonus uh, that came out, I think, in August, the end of August, some people can't tell the difference between the Bunga Boys, Chapo, and Amy Therese. A warning, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, fucking right. What is wrong with people? That is really, really <laughs> offensive. <laughs> really um, offensive. Yeah, watch your only- back, Vulcan. No, yes. I mean, I don't know what the... Some people, who are these people? I mean, I guess the... There's clear what's, what's, differences what's, between what's, all three of those groups. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, on the other hand, though, it's you know these are not political parties with programs; they are podcasts or a podcasters. People, so, yeah. yeah. So maybe I, mean, I, I would say probably Alex is the chapelist guy on oh, here. F- George is the most Theresiest guy on here, <laughs> and I'm the, bung, the most bunga guy on the bunga boys. So I mean, oh. to that extent, it's partly true, but. I so you're saying that we synth- we synthesize all three of those <laughs> tendencies of which we are one? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's dialectical. <laughs> I mean, we could engage. We could engage in a whole critique of uh, those two opposing tendencies, um, which I'm sure listeners would love to listen to. But we're not going to do that. I don't think. <laughs> We've yeah, we got should, better we things should, to do. No, yeah. we should do that and put out a 453 minute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Actually, Especially what makes what makes Alpha Bunga Bunga Alpha Bunga Bunga is precisely that we uh, don't go in for that kind of thing. So that's uh, so let's move on. Um, right. So Anthony says uh, left radicalism today is a death rattle of the downwardly mobile PMC uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter, a great example. The killing in Kenosha is a sign of a disastrous failure of the riot of the right form as praxis. Um, and he goes on to say that these forms of anarchism are essentially the commando troops of the Democratic Party. So what you get with, for example, Antifa versus Boogaloo is the professional managerial class against the petty bourgeois, with both trying to enroll the proletariat and lumpen proletariat in a militant conflict in the service of the two main parties. Um, all of which I think we agree with. In fact, we've dedicated a whole chapter in our upcoming book to that question. Um, he Anthony goes on, though, to say uh, he suggests discussing Turchin's book, Ages of Discord, uh, for us to discuss and submit to a Marxist critique that and or Michael Lind. Um, Michael Lind, we've read, I think we've even discussed before. Um, do you guys have you read the Turchin book? I haven't. No, I think it's a great suggestion. Um, you know, I think so. Thank you, Anthony, for the suggestion. And I think, you know, I mean, I more or less agree with maybe, you know, slight differences of emphasis, but I more or less agree with your reading of the kind of the essential politics of the various um, 
kind of violent groups or armed protesters, whatever you want to call them, Antifa and Boogaloo associated with the two wings of American politics. So, and yeah, I mean, I think it would be useful for us to talk to, to talk about Turchin and indeed to talk more about Michael Lint. I think clarifying where we um, where we agree and disagree would be a useful exercise. The one thing that I would disagree with in in the statement is <clears throat> the extent to which the organisations that Anthony talked about are trying to enrol the proletariat and lumpen proletariat, as as he puts it, because I don't think that's the aim at all. I don't think that's Antifa's goal. I think it's a bit, you know, maybe this this does warrant more discussion, but I think it's not uh, an attempt. No, but I think it's he's not, talking it's not, about it's not the Democrats. No, no, but the Democrats are trying to enroll, you know, they try to kind of uh, keep their own factions on side yeah. by playing these games. I think that's what he meant. I don't think... In, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess then it's partly what do you mean by enroll? Like get to vote for you and then tell to fuck off is not the same. <laughs> that's it. That is it. Mobilize. Yeah. I, think, I think that's no, no, probably that's what... Okay, <laughs> maybe we agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're not trying to or like systemically organize in any way. I mean, it's you know, uh, other than you know, so what you get, I think, in uh, you know, in the, in the what was it called? The unfortunately not called the Chad, but instead the Chaz, uh, the Chapel Hill Autonomous Zone in uh, in Seattle, where it was like you know, kind of middle class activists and then like lumpen proletariat, effectively, um, as as it was described. Um, and so you know, that would be an example of them trying to enroll them in this conflict with Antifa, and then Antifa likewise tried to. Um, try to speak to the so-called white working class and try to enlist them in this. But, you know, again, most people aren't interested. <laughs> um, right. So um, to move on, uh, blank, I say blank just because it's someone who didn't uh, divulge their name. Um, and again, a reminder to listeners, if you m- want us to comment on something, but don't want us to say your name, uh, let do let us know. Uh, so this also, was- if your name, if, yeah. if your name is blank, <laughs> you have to say that your name's blank rather yeah. than Otherwise, Please it leave will that clear. come across like you didn't want your name to yeah. be to be said. Yeah. Are you quote we unquote have... blank or are you actually blank? Uh, yeah. There you right. Go. Uh, this one's for Phil. Phil, I have read some of your scholarly work and plan on pirating your books when I get the time to work through them. But I'm not super familiar with your views on war and imperialism. I wanted to know what you make of the reporting coming out of publications like The Grey Zone and Declassified UK. Uh the, the listener blank uh, is maybe positive about the reporting, but thinks that their views are liberal or radical, radical liberal. And um, what do you think, even people who do real reporting, such as these people, uh, why do they have such brain dead ideas of how positive change can come about? So I guess basically what, you know, what do you, what, Phil, what do you take from the factual reporting of the gray zone, but at the same time, their crap politics? So I'm not really, I'm not, you know, I can't claim any great um, uh, kind of awareness or familiarity with Grey Zone and Declassified UK. I'm not, I'm not so sure that their, you know, that their um, politics is so much worse than anyone than anyone else's um, in respect of kind of uh, reporting on war or what have you. Um, and so I think the question is a broader one about why is kind of um, what is it about journalism that's so degraded? And I think, and you know, and then, I mean, not wishing to be too academic about it, but I think it folds out to a larger question about the general disarray and disorganization of the professions as a whole. Um, That would be my guess, I suppose, as to the general decay of 
the decay of journalism as a whole, um, the lack of a kind of journalistic ethos at the core of um, how they understand themselves in relation to each other and in relation to society. Um, as for war and imperialism, uh, do you want me to answer that, Alex? I mean, like, I don't know what you're going to say. Are you going to say you're for war or against it? I mean, you actually should make a decision whether you're for or against it. So I was going to talk a bit about one of my books. <laughs> yeah, go on. So um, the I suppose the war, my thoughts on war and imperialism are mostly contained in um, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, which you should buy rather than pirate because, you know, I need to like buy like, I don't know, silk handkerchiefs for my suits and stuff. So <laughs> I, I need I need the royalties. Um, but the I suppose the main um, the main account of that with respect to um, war and imperialism is trying to move away from the kind of inherited legacy of the 20th century understandings, which I think to some degree include understanding the contemporary dynamics of war and empire. Um, and in particular, I suppose the uh, one of the arguments I make in that is that the kind of vulgar Leninism that has become to some degree a spontaneous understanding of war, which is to say that um, uh, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan is driven by the kind of quest for natural resources or oil. Um, and this is what explains it. And that's as far as any kind of critical analysis goes. And this was very prevalent for quite a while on the left and still is to some degree. And I call that a vulgar Leninism. Um, very importantly, because I think it um, means that the underlying politics of the war is left untouched, um, and in particular, the ideals of uh, of liberal war, so war for human rights and war for democracy. And so as those ideals are seen to be corrupted by the ulterior motives of the neocons or um, oil corporations or what have you, the ideas themselves are insulated effectively from critique and are left um, unscathed. And so the my view essentially i suppose the short answer is that my view on a war and imperialism is the need to cut through the vulgar leninism um that uh, obscures so much debate in order to um critique the politics of these conflicts of liberal war waged by western states and that means directly tackling ideas associated with human rights humanitarianism um and democratization and war for those things so it's uh, like I say, yeah, it's the politics essentially that I think need to be tackled and that has been um, avoided through the general tenor of left criticisms of these conflicts thus far. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a, go ahead. It's a, it's a very good book, Cosmopolitan Dystopia. We should maybe, we should maybe do it, do an episode on it on the podcast. I think there's a lot of, Thanks, a lot of stuff. guys. Would you invite me on? Really? <laughs> we'd we'd have to see it might be it might be better to be one of the ones where we don't have the author on and we just critique that's them behind, behind their, their back yeah their back. yeah <laughs> um but no i think that's that that i think resonates or that was one of the points in the in the book that resonated a lot how the i think the the motives for for some uh humanitarian interventions for some liberal sorts of war are not very clearly critiqued in the, in the discipline as far as you present in. Uh, obviously, you know this a lot better than than either the two of us. The IR discipline. Um, I just had one comment on on the grey zone, the declassified UK. I'm less familiar with, but I mean, I think there's, I think there's a problem with their their, their poli- I guess I'm either reading between the lines of what the listener is asking or imputing into it uh, what I want to say, <laughs> one or the other. Take your pick. Uh, is the fact that there's a kind of 
really crappy degraded Stalin, degraded Stalinism, yeah, even degraded Stalinism in it, um, of, you know, the kind of cheap, vulgar anti-imperialism, which is really a sort of anti-Americanism, which um, sees all evil in the world emanating from the US State Department and Pentagon and uh, NSA, uh, and thereby exempts any, or rather removes any agency from, you know, Bashar al-Assad or uh, she, you know, or, or she or, you know, any other um, kind of non-Western ruler. Um, and I think this comes across, I mean, I, I feel this quite a lot with this sort of tendency in Brazil. So you can point at, for example, elements of uh, conspiracy, right, um, or U.S. influence uh, and so on, uh, which is then built up into a whole story of some overarching imperial conspiracy. Um, and often these things are much more impersonal uh, in the way that they work, that basically there are moments where there's obvious conspiracy, but that, those are rare precisely because those are rare moments where uh, kind of ruling classes actually combine self-consciously. Um, most of the time it happens in a much more sort of automatic fashion. And the other problem with this sort of approach is that it kind of is a way of avoiding discussing the internal contradictions within countries. So it's often discussed, I mean, I'm just using this example because it's forefront of my mind, but with Brazil, it's argued that uh, the, the sort of soft coup against the Workers' Party in 2006, or 2016 rather, was uh, the product of U.S. meddling, right? As if the domestic forces and the, dom and the domestic balance of forces didn't really need analyzing, as if those reactionary tendencies in Brazil weren't already present and in fact were totally capable of mounting such a soft coup uh, entirely themselves. And also of examining which is the other side of it, examining the left's weaknesses, that the Workers' Party made a rod for its own back. Um, and, you know, both in, well, in various in various ways, in demobilizing its base, um, in engaging in uh, horse trading politics and the sort of corruption for which they were eventually uh, thrown out. So that kind of approach, which the Grey Zone presents, whatever usefulness of their factual reporting um, comes attached, I agree with the questioner, uh, comes attached with the sort of politics which avoids examining the internal contradictions of countries over there um, in the guise of critiquing imperialism um, emanating from uh, the capitalist core. Yeah, no, 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 nothing else on that. I think we can move on to the, um, on to the next one. Okay, uh, another blank, a different blank, I think. Maybe it's the same blank, who knows. Uh, why do you think that if Brexit were to occur that the UK would be able to exercise genuine self-determination. I agree with your critiques of the EU, but struggle to see how an independent UK would operate within a globalized market economy with a pro-worker orientation. In other words, wouldn't the market just drag an independent UK towards policy that furthered capital's interests? Uh, I, I can start off with this one. I think this is something obviously that was um, was heard or was said during the the discussions in the past few years around around Brexit, and I think the the, the way to respond to it is to say that Brexit is a, was a democratic mo moment without a democratic movement, and that the important thing is a pro it's a process, or what we're looking for is a process of democratizing. So Brexit in and of itself does not democratize everyday life or the economy, um, but it is crucial for one main reason that EU membership not only imposes on British politics rules that we might not want like state aid rules for example but perhaps more importantly britain as a member state is incorporated into a process and this is outlined in peter mayer's book and in chris bickerton's work and various other places the full brexit i should actually have said first and foremost um so the britain's member state is incorporated into a process in which key decisions are taken out of the out of democratic contestation and instead legitimacy is given by 
the EU by inter, uh, intra-elite um, discussions at the European level. So in order to achieve anything close to socialism, you need to, to, to re-politicize some of these key key struggles, key key decisions. Um, and that re-politicization is a prerequisite for socialism. It's not the same thing as it. So hmm. I think that's that's the first point I would make, the idea that the market would drag an independent EU towards policy that furthers capital's interest. Well, no, I, do, I think that's wrong. I think if you have um, a political project which is against capital's interest and is in Labour's interest, then that's precisely what you're what you're what you're trying to do. And there are various things around capital controls and all the other sorts of things which I think could be adduced to support that argument. Sorry, that that came out as a little bit, no, little no, bit sort good. of short tempered and and a bit low energy. Um, <laughs> but it's good to have debate about these things. Good to have discussions. We we do like questions. Thank no, but you. I think that I think you you highlighted an important thing, which is the question that Brexit should be or should have been seen as a process and not as uh, as not as just an event. Um, and of course, when you see it or, or presented as an event, as something to just be achieved, as the Conservatives have done, uh, then you remove any radical potential to it. Get Brexit done, as Phil said, is a depoliticizing yeah. slogan. It's attempting to get any democratizing content out of of it and just reduce it to a, a formal political process mm-hmm. or a formal political event. What I would add to what George has said is, um, it's not to can you know the. the there seems to be the assumption in the listener's question that genuine self-determination is autarky and that autarky is impossible because the British economy can't be self-sufficient. Um, and it's not about economic autarky, but rather about um, in, you know, not conflating, in fact, the politics and the economics of it. So, um, And we've always said in the full Brexit, um, in the work that I, George and I have done around this, if it requires Britain to accept certain kind of external constraints as part of dealing with the outside world, such as in trade agreements, um, that is, you know, that is uh, eminently, eminently acceptable and compatible with self-determination, which is the if you if you agree at the national level to accept certain external constraints in order to um, cooperate with other countries, that's uh, you know that's the way it goes. Um, the difference with the European Union is not so much the external constraints on countries who are members of it, which though important as they are, but rather the way in which it reconfigures the internal architecture of politics and economics. Um, so less that it constrains national sovereignty so much as it constrains popular sovereignty, the way in which it extracts certain realms of decision making from within um, the national level and enshrines them at the superstate level where they're insulated from popular pressure and democratic control at the national level. And it's that that has always been the most egregious um, and poisonous part of of the European Union and membership of the European Union. And it's that that was targeted by Brexit. So um, if self-determination is understood as this kind of pure, free-floating ideal, then, you know, by definition, that is something that would never exist. Um, and uh, there is no, I don't think that being independent and operating in a globalized market economy is, uh, those two things are not counterposed. Um, the question is a political one more than an economic one. Yeah, very good. I actually, we should move on to the questions which are specific to certain episodes. And we're going to talk about uh, episode 149, the one on unemployment, or uh, it's not robots, it's capitalism, because the first question uh, ties very directly 
to what we've just been discussing with regard to Brexit. So the question comes from uh, Nicholas Kiersey, friend of the podcast, uh, longtime listener uh, and uh, and previous guest as well, um, who took exception to the interview with uh, Aaron Benenav, uh, summarizing his comments. This whole palaver in his New Left Review pieces about the capital strike uh, is a trap. That is, um, that capital will threaten to stop investing, to remove its money out and th- go invest elsewhere um, if certain kind of left-wing policies are brought in or a left-wing government comes to power. Uh, yes, of course, the capital strike is basically the gravitational limit of capitalism, but that's hardly news. The capital strike was a central pillar of the Grexit debate, too, and we all know who won that. In reference to Greece, but with wider application, Nicholas continues, a state strategy is necessary if they, meaning Greece in this example, they were uh, going to be able to win anything from the EU. No amount of hand-waving from Beninav as to the failures of the Keynesian state is going to change that. You might not like the state, but you have to have a plan for it. Um, there's another section to that, to uh, Nicholas's comment, which we'll come to, I think, maybe after, after this, because um, we should maybe comment on comment on this uh, maybe more directly because I think what he sees in Beninav is a sort of um, a sort of I guess a, a certain anti-politics I suppose um, to a very radical um, proposal which sees no possibility of uh, for example any radical Keynesian uh, approach to taking state power and then trying to you know stimulate the economy outside of the EU um, purely you know purely in, internally Um and because ben, because of Beninav's critique, Nicholas Kiersey thinks this ends up being kind of, yeah, kind of not engaging with politics as it is now, and the, and the need for for the state and for the state to reorganize economic production, you know, after after the seizure of power. So, well, so just to comment on that briefly, I mean, I'm personally a bit um, yeah, ambivalent on on it. Um, on the one hand, uh, I totally buy Beninav's critiques of radical Keynesianism. On the other hand, um, I understand, uh, I think what Nicholas is driving at in terms of the need for some sort of, you know, state policy and a sort of process leading towards a kind of, you know, socialization effectively. So, um, so basically, I don't know, I think that's kind of, it's, it kind of stumped me. Um, but I think, uh, the, the threat of the capital strike is real and we need to deal with that. But I think I still think it needs to be it's a confrontation that needs to be um, that needs to be broached effectively that, uh, you know, if Greece had left the EU, um, it would need to deal with these issues that it would need to deal with capital flight. It would need to um, wrangle with um, with the fact that all other kind of company, uh, all other countries would and uh, and, you know, capital would try to strangle Greece and have a plan for that. Um, without necessarily being a kind of maximalist strategy of, well, once you leave the EU, then full communism now, you know, I think there is a, a sort of intermediate, uh, intermediate plane. Um, Nicholas was also critical of uh, Beninav's approach to fully automated luxury communism. Um, Nicholas holds that FALC, fully automated luxury communism, is more serious than the Silicon Valley froth that Beninav presents it as. That is, that it's not a solution for a world with automation, but an attempt to leverage its possibilities. Um, now, we discussed uh, fully automated luxury communism with uh, with um, Aaron Bastani when we had him on um, a good year or more ago. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of I kind of agree that there's that there is more to it, that it's an attempt to leverage 
uh, the possibilities of automation and say, hey, we could have actually more luxury. But the problem with Falk is precisely its lack of politics um, in, in, in a similar way to the line of Nicholas's critique with regard to Benenav, um, which is, again, is something that we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, and for all that it presents itself as a salute, as a as an attempt to leverage the possibilities of automation, effectively be be able to do less work and have uh, you know for ruthless exploitation of the robots, which is a good thing. I think a lot of it is based on an assumption that there will be automation anyway. Um, which, as we discussed in that episode, automation won't happen automatically if there aren't upward pressures on wages forcing capitalists to invest more in in labor saving technology like automation. I think I think actually that's sort of misses the point and sorry to be a broken record on this but i think the important thing to say about falc about fully automated luxury communism is that it's not about getting some technical solutions to a current problem it's recognizing that we already have the technology we already have the productive power and it's been for a long long time a political problem that we're faced and trying to magic it away with with various kind of technological fixes is the wrong approach. Instead, we need to just recognize that we are faced with the, the possibility of an entirely different economic system if we had the political will and the political power to to introduce it. And so luxury and abundance are already are already here, but we just don't we just don't control them. Yeah, no, very good. Um, I'd endorse that. So uh, another one on this episode, Alex Knight asks in a similar vein, why can't it be as simple as asking people or charities or local authorities what public work needs doing and providing public money to hire people to do it through an expanded public works program augmented by a job guarantee? Why write off the state as a direct employer? Again, this is kind of in direct contrast, I think, to uh, Ben and Av's view, which, um, which would see that as... Um, I guess it's impossible that you'd need a, you know, you'd need a transition to socialism to actually enact that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting because response to coronavirus has has seen, in many cases, a lot of people who um, have been paid to to not work. It's been in some ways the opposite of a jobs guarantee. It's been guaranteed non jobs or, or furlough schemes of various sorts i mean it's an it's a it's kind of an interesting point like what um could have happened if there was a um a jobs guarantee of some of some sort because you had a situation of a lot of people not working and a lot of things uh, often technical challenges around around the pandemic that needed that needed doing so i think the um reality of where we are at the moment seems like there could be a space for a jobs guarantee be, to be promoted or to be defended. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, one comment from John Kennedy uh, in reference to episode 152, the episode on uh, why anti-fascism is a problem. I would have liked if non-liberal anti-fascism was discussed a little more and separately from the never Trump or Front Républicain anti-fascism. Surely not all anti-fascist action against explicitly neo-Nazi groups is just middle class LARPing. Should neo-Nazi organizations just be ignored? Um, and in fact, I think it's good that John made that question because a lot of the response that we got on Facebook from other people, uh, especially people angry about it, were kind of going, yeah, 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 sure. Take the, I take the point about liberal anti-fascism just being a way of arguing for supporting the Democratic Party or whatever. But we need to oppose fascists and actually like grassroots anti-fascism is important. So why are you criticizing that? Uh, so I didn't. I, can, I didn't see the discussions on Facebook, so I can reply with the confidence of <laughs> of the ignorant, um, which I think is a good position to be in. I mean, in some ways, 
non-liberal anti-fascism is worse because it's people who should know better. They should have a material, a class-based analysis, and they should know that there is no revolutionary left. There is no threat to capital from the left. So you're not going to have fascism. So it is basically still just LARPing, but it's people who should be able to separate those those two things and to see that actually neo-Nazi organisations, fascist organisations are not strong and to, to, to inflate your own politics morally by saying these things need to be combated and we need to do X, Y, Z. No, you have to win people over in a, in a different way and you can't blackmail and, and morally um, put people in a position where they have to support your project because otherwise the, the fascists are going to take over because that is not uh, a concrete analysis of the concrete situation that we're in. So I would add to what George has said and flip it around. I mean, this idea that uh, liberal anti-fascism is a kind of contaminant of the real thing, which seems to be the presumption in John Kennedy's question. It's entirely, I mean, it's uh, you flip that around. Anti-fascism at its core was the um, Stalinist uh, response in the interwar period, uh, both to cover up the failure, the earlier failures um, by which the Stalinists failed to confront fascism, particularly in Nazi Germany, but also as a way to protect the interests of the Soviet state to make sure that it didn't threaten um, the British and French ruling classes. It extends it quite the contrary; it extended political support to them as part of their own kind of geopolitical rivalry with Nazi Germany. So it's only to say that. Um, the idea of kind of organically uh, of kind of insulating the pure good anti-fascism from the bad liberal kind of version of it, the diluted version, is entirely us over tit. Um, the original core of anti-fascism is, is already the deep compromise, the acceptance of uh, lesser evilism, the acceptance of the status quo for um, staving off the possibility of, um, of the worst. Um, and that, you know, that we've lived through so many degraded iterations of that basic policy of accepting of the politics of lesser evilism, you know, that's the long, the long shadow of interwar politics still kind of um, casting, uh, shrouding us in that, um, in that confusion, essentially. So, yeah, I, I, reject, I, I, um, I reject the way in which the quest, the premise of the question, basically. I mean, I agree with what George and Philip just said. I think the only thing you could argue is that, because I think a lot of the discussions about this come down to, well, are you saying that we shouldn't, uh, you know, protect um, immigrant homes from, like, racist attacks, right? Because I think that's what, where it comes down to. It's like, no, but these are on-the-ground anti-fascist activity, um, which we should be doing. And are you saying we shouldn't do that just because that means... Um, in doing that, you somehow are uh, shilling for the Democrats. Like, how is that, you know, the case? No, I agree. But I, I think we're discussing anti-fascism as a kind of general political strategy. And that's a problem. If organizations want, and in fact, they should, you know, for example, defend immigrant homes from attacks from racists, they should absolutely do that. But I think the fact is that that, in a lot of the West, that isn't actually happening in, with a lot with a you know that frequently or that often really um it's fairly minor so i think it's still need to keep it's these things in in yeah in, it's certainly in not the way in which antifa have kind of um assumed their public stance isn't around those kinds of um act community kind of based actions and organizing but i think even then you know i would i mean the very fact that it understands itself as anti-fascist is exactly it is exactly the problem. Um, the kind of the politics which is negatively defined, empty at its core. Um, so you know the kind of the uh, the actions and the politics 
are two separate things. I mean, who you know who would who would dispute the idea of uh, communities defending themselves against um, racist attack, for instance? But that's separate from a politics which is under, understands itself as anti-fascist. Is you know I think that still is problematic. It's got to be something broader than that and positive, not negatively defined, particularly with all the kind of dubious history that comes with it, as well as um, all the risks and dangers of um, providing ideological cover and support essentially for the Democrats in the US. Okay, so jumping uh, to episode 148, which is the three articles in which we discussed COVID. Uh, So AM says, I'm an infectious diseases doctor from sunny Melbourne. This was a very frustrating episode to listen to. Your engagement with the politics of COVID uh, is undermined by scientific illiteracy and is such a waste of an important critique. There's overwhelming evidence that COVID causes excess death. Older, poorer people with comorbidities are more at risk. Young, healthy people die too. Vague references to pre-existing problems or claims of falsified death rates is ignorant and unnecessary. The response to a pandemic is essentially social and political. As you rightly say, why muddy that with easily falsifiable claims that seem to aim to minimize the impact of the disease? Uh, Phil. Yeah, so um, this gives me an opportunity to clarify, I guess, what I said um, in that particular episode. Um, so, uh, and to hopefully uh, rebut some of what the listener has um, taken exception to. So, if listeners recall, it was, uh, or those who didn't listen to it, we were discussing an article by uh, the FT correspondent Wolfgang Munchau when he was saying about the difficulties of drawing or inferring any broad generalizations from the from the experience of any country about COVID. And that I think I'd still stick to. So we weren't, I mean, and we weren't making any particular, we certainly didn't deny that COVID causes excess death um, or that COVID strikes young or healthy people. Um, I suggested perhaps only that there might be um, that young or healthy people with pre-existing problems might be more at risk. And I certainly didn't claim that death rates have been falsified. I said death rates have been revised, which they have. In Spain, the official death rate was revised upward, which meant, which brought it very close, the um, per 100,000 death rate to the British death rate. The point being that they're given the differences in the Spanish state's response and the British state's response, um, they wouldn't seem, and given the proximity of the overall death rates, in line with what Wolfgang Münchow is arguing, it makes it very difficult to draw any broad generalizations. It's also worth remembering, I mean, in the Münchow article, he was talking about Sweden, which is the usual kind of paradigm used by lockdown skeptics to suggest that um, there are alternative ways of doing things. And he makes the point very clearly in the article that um, given the difficulty of extrapolating from countries to other countries, there's so many variables at work that we shouldn't rush to assume that Sweden has gotten further ahead. So I think, you know, the, and I, so I stand by what we said. We certainly didn't say death rates have been falsified. We said that they would, um, that they might be subject to revision. And indeed they have, like I mentioned in Spain and also here in the UK, there was the article that I was referring to is published a British medical journal um, saying that um, perhaps the death rate needed to be revised here in the UK downward and that people were um, assuming to be to have died with COVID when it was only that COVID was present in their bodies at the time. So um, 
all of this is only to say that the claim being the claim that we were making was Wolfgang Münchow's. We were defending Wolfgang Münchow's claim, or I was, and that it was a very modest and limited claim not to make broad extrapolations or inferences. And that um, in terms of what we will be able to say with great, we have to make uh, policy in these conditions of deep uncertainty without being willing to kind of assume that there is a single paradigm um, that can be applied across countries. And I think, so, I mean, I'd stand by that. So I am afraid I have to uh, reject the um, suggestions of the listener in this case. I think they, they, there's been a misunderstanding. I think we've 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 rejected quite a few questions um, this afternoon, but I think I mean it does reveal an important point that the there's no sort of um, straightforward science to to hide behind, um, and that it's political decisions that that are being made. Um, and I think that is that is a really important point because it does reveal the lack of authority, the lack of public um, mobilization behind any political projects which are which are addressing um, addressing COVID. And it's not, unfortunately for technocrats around the world, it's not as so easy as being able to say, here's the definitive. Um, we've taken all the data in the world and here's the definitive approach and this is what we are compelled to do. Instead, there has to be a political response defended. Um, politically, which of course is very, very difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll, we'll, we'll no doubt come back to this um, a number of times um, because this bastard uh, of a pandemic isn't going away. So there's a lot to we'll have discuss. several waves of, of episodes on it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but um, but I do think there's a risk, at the, a kind of opposite risk to what George was saying is that in critiquing the politics behind supposedly neutral um, scientific decisions, one also avoids, ends up avoiding actually discussing what would be a good scientific response because you're just kind of, um, mm. you know, kind of trying to debunk what are, you know, debunk the the kind of politics behind the the science, right? And actually, should we should take responsibility for saying, okay, what do we think is that would actually be a sensible uh, approach, even you know, without being an epidemiologist, but to actually take the information that we do have and say at least um well this one this option at least is a very bad one you know um you have to and, you have to avoid the risk of of bunking and debunking you can't just be in a in a in a bunk a bunk based uh, war you uh, know so oh god what let's move That's, on let's let's right, move fine. on um along that same episode someone says what are the long-term effects of covid for capitalism especially if no herd immunity uh is possible or if there is no um, natural herd immunity i should say uh and no vaccine surely an alternative mode of the production distribution of the necessaries of life would be required in the long term if politically unacceptable levels of unemployment and death are to be avoided well, indeed. I would say the disease, you know, I suppose my strong response to this would, well, I mean, my response to this would be the disease isn't going to do anything for us. If it will do, it certainly won't make arguments for the left and it won't um, uh, compensate for the weaknesses of the organized left. If it does anything, it will accelerate trends that were already in play. And these kind of trends, I think, were already evident in the sense of reshoring supply lines, um, greater kind of economic self-sufficiency. These were very evident kind of um, in the growing kind of uh, protectionism, obviously the trade war between the US and uh, China, but also growing policies of protectionism throughout the world, which, you know, you can kind of uh, map quite quite easily. And I think COVID will um, accelerate them. So, uh 
you know, and which is to say it will strengthen the tendencies about, through which capitalism was already reorganizing itself. So I wouldn't draw any um, conclusions about the idea that COVID would force us to practically innovate um, different non-capitalist or post-capitalist ways of doing things. It might produce, you know, there might be kind of social, um, medical, technological, even economic responses that are beneficial and that improve. But I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't assume that those amount to some kind of general improvement in terms of our social organization or push us closer to the limit point of um, capitalist society. I think we've been quite consistent on this point that it's an it's in some ways a negative event in exactly the way that you you just were elaborating there, Phil, that it's not, you know, there's you, you can't assume it's going to be the agent of change. I mean, look in, look at the first six months or you know longer now of 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 being in this in this situation and what's what have been the major changes to the way that we produce you do to, to production there really have not been very many you haven't seen a radical um kind of imposition of war communism or anything along along those lines and that is precisely because you don't have a you don't have the the virus itself is not is not a political agent it it cannot um it it cannot enact these these changes i mean i think as you said there you are wish, some you existing... wish you were in moscow in 1919 eating cabbage soup george is that what you want cabbage soup i've never had it before if it if it was nice and, and buttery then yeah maybe it's not going to be buttery because it's war communism <laughs> the well you know you, you never know um i did have a serious point but it was about the yeah i mean i, I just think it, it the question asked about politically acceptable levels of unemployment and and death and i think that's a um that's obviously politically acceptable as i'm sure the you know the, the, the question is based on this this premise is defined by political conflict at that at that point in time so i think there's a lot of um elasticity in some of the things which um which covid would otherwise potentially change um there's a lot of flexibility in what's acceptable so i think yeah i mean that's 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 been my point or our point all along no fundamental change um if anything the status quo with certain trends exaggerated will be reinforced i think yeah i mean i responding to the question that's asked um uh, as you guys seem not to have read it it's about uh if why would you respond to the question because... that's asked when you can just talk about whatever you want to the, the, the point is, is the, co- the question the point is a pandemic doesn't go away right there's no natural herd immunity and no vaccine so we're still living with it by 2024 right um what happens then and i mean i agree that really poses serious questions but there'd just be more podcasters because, well you know, yeah probably just be fucking bored and but i but i think i think bad, podcast for us. bad for us yeah, yeah bad for us I, I think what one can say is that um you know that would surely rule out lockdowns because we just have to learn to live with it lockdown is meant to be a short-term thing to to stop the spread um to protect health services and so on no so no no can't... i think there would be so, there would so be hang on hang on let me finish let me finish the, let me okay. finish the point All right. um so that would be in theory ruled out but the problem is, is that without any um real co- sort of public debate and conflict over what measures could be taken of course informed by kind of epidemiology and and, and you know just a general approach to public health uh, we might end up with more lo- we might end up with continuing lockdowns in certain places uh, not in brazil but yes in the uk uh, for example um 
as well as lots of deaths. So you might end up with more more lockdown, more death, in, in, in basically in, in kind of, um, I would take a lot of what George said there, which is that um, you might, without kind of any real conflict over what this is, uh, over any real, you know, kind of real solution and people trying to um, get their interests actually represented by by the state in responding to the pandemic, um, we might end up with kind of a worst of a worst of both worlds, lots of excess death, lots of unemployment and restrictions on freedom. Um, so that's grim. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed for fingers you, crossed for a vaccine. Yeah. Can you imagine it's 2026 and, you know, the only thing that's changed is that there's more imaginative terms for lockdown. So we've gone beyond <laughs> lockdown circuit breakers to like timeouts or I don't know, just Mm. intermezzo so did there be some ways to describe the the what the the eighth national yeah. lockdown that we're yeah, having we're in, just on a break here we're just on a social break we're not <laughs> it's not a lockdown um right so uh moving, yeah. moving on last two episodes which we're gonna discuss questions in response to um 147 which was our interview with benjamin moser sam says i think so i don't remember what this refers to in the episode but uh we'll take it as as it is Sam says, I think social media, that is the democratization of media production, might one day be considered a profoundly dangerous and misguided idea, similar to how we currently think about eugenics. The problem is that by democratizing media, we've inadvertently begun to democratize reality. Fragmented realities are being constructed and maintained through the images and information consumed through social media platforms. Um, well, yeah, slightly I mean, that's odd. bad, bad for podcasting, odd. but... Uh, it's slightly odd. Uh, I mean, I don't, you know... I. The idea of democratizing reality sounds wonderful, um, but uh, because uh, you know that would be uh, a different. No, but, kind but, of I, guess, but I guess it's fragmenting epistemology would be a, a, a different. I know, way to put I it. know, I know, I know what they were driving at, but I mean, it's an odd way to phrase it. Um, so, and also, I mean, the idea that the you know social media is democratized media. I mean, if you think about the way in which that's concentrated power in Facebook and Twitter, I wouldn't say that counts as democratization. Um, yeah, so, that's so, a good point. I think. I mean, I think, I think the I think the listener is kind of conflating certain kind of deeper claims, which I suppose link to you know kind of uh, certain you know, I don't know Baudrillardian theories about uh, um, hyper reality and what have you. Well, they're pointing in that direction anyway, alongside um, claims about the institutional structure of uh, kind of new technological media. And so, and I, you know, I don't think, I mean, there's not much to be said when uh, the two things are kind of um, smudged together, because I just don't think it, it works. I mean, fragmented realities, they're not really fragmented realities. If you're saying that there's kind of a, a disintegrative effect in the public sphere, um, I think those those tendencies predated social media and social media is exacerbated rather than created them. So yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it's not as simple as uh, as the listener suggests here. Two very quick points on this. One is that we haven't had a democratization of of media. I think the word that needs to be introduced is ownership or control. And as Phil said, you know, these things, they're not democratic. They're not commonly or publicly owned. The second is, I think this, but I think there is something in this question, which is, or or points to the, the fact that the left doesn't really particularly seem to want to defend an idea of truth. And so if you have a number of, what did you say, Alex, fragmented epistemologies 
very um mm, yeah nice i mean alex loves that shit he loves it i mean if we're all, if we're all first thing that came to mind it's then... not, you know i'm not trying to be poncy it's just automatic <laughs> <laughs> you're not trying it just comes naturally i mean yeah. that's 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 in some ways maybe worse but um yeah i mean that's that's i guess lack of authority lack of defensive truth um possibly so yeah i mean there's 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 something in that but obviously as, as podcasters we would defend new forms of <laughs> new forms of media and they're 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 great, aren't they? Podcasts, at least. <laughs> uh, right, last uh, last set of uh, questions. I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna read these out both together, um, and then we can discuss them quickly before uh, we turn you over to the bonus stuff. Um, so, at Tiredy says, I am struck once more by how intersectionality or methodology defining itself in opposition to class reductionism blocks not only class analysis but the historical materialist method entirely. Um, did I say that this was in reference to episode 146, uh, Ben Tippett on class? Um, if I didn't, I'm saying it now. Sorry for that. Uh, and another comment from Sensible Captain. Because Tippett's understanding of class is hazy, based on the notion of inequality or poverty, he cannot grasp why class has nothing to do with race. And instead, like, like Assad Haider or other Althusserian millennial leftists today, conflates the two. By constantly invoking class alongside race, the specific heuristic power uh, of class, anal class analysis delivers is eschewed. Um, that was um, perhaps a complicated way of, uh, of phrasing that. Um, just to rephrase it. Um, it's a basically because um, Tibbet's analysis is based on an idea of just inequality or poverty that, you know, working class means you have less and, uh, you know, middle class you means you have a bit more. Um, because of that understanding, it seems the same as race, as having more or less or um, some notion of inequality rather than um, a proper class analysis as advanced uh, by Marx, for example. So, uh, guys, responses. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the one thing we don't want is fragmented epistemologies um, or is, is, is issuing <laughs> specific heuristic powers. Um, no, I think it was a good it was a good discussion that we had with Ben and it was quite revealing um, in some ways, just in terms of trying to get, I guess, get more um, clarity in some of the ways that these concepts relate to each other. Um, yeah. And I, I think the idea of class reduction, class reductionist is, is not a, not a term that I think is particularly useful. And obviously it's not, not supposed to be, it's supposed to denigrate historical materialism as an, as an analysis and a political project. Not really sure where I'm going with this, other than to say. No, I think I, mean, I think sensible captain is right. Essentially, that the um, it's a sensible it's a sensible it's a sensible comment from sensible captain. I mean, what else can you say, really? <laughs> yes, so it's a sensible comment. I mean, I think the uh, and in, and usefully draws out the the difficulties that you end up in once you understand class in terms of essentially inequality um, of consumption or um, esteem or anything else, um, material resources rather than as um, as per the kind of classical understanding, relationship to means of production. So, yeah. No, I think yeah. that that's right. The only thing I would add is that the it's. I think it came across very clearly, and I mean, this is not to, to pick on on Ben Tippett specifically, because I think it's a general problem that, especially, I guess, what you could call kind of contemporary social democrats, um, especially younger millennial social democrats have an understanding of class which is based Alphys on Alphysarians indeed. Well, yeah, based on based on um inequality effectively. Alphysar. So the <laughs> just going to keep saying that. It's kind of weird. Um <laughs> it's like a like a parrot who just says Altusar, Altusar. Um 
anyway, so if you have a vision which is just based on inequality, you can't really defend uh, the, the the kind of primordial importance of class against race or gender or any other form of inequality um, because you treat class as just one form of inequality rather than class as the fundamental way of explaining those other things. Um, so, you know, I think this is actually insensible captain's question, which I kind of cut out, but basically class is a way of explaining the world. It's not just something to be explained um, in the way that race is, for example. Yeah, I think that's actually really a really important way of framing it. Yeah. But it's also very it's also very simple as well. I mean the this is maybe the, the reason why the Althusserians or the, the why some people um kind of veer away from this since the in some ways the, the the statement of class as a relationship of ownership of to the means of production, that's like you can't spin out a whole a whole book on, on that concept itself because it's actually fairly straightforward. You know, to get the word count up you need to to bring in some other ideas and see how they all relate to to each other. Um Maybe okay. that's a challenging. Don't, thing don't know why I felt the need to add that. Yeah. Thank um, you, George. Yeah, that was really helpful. Uh, and on that glorious note, uh, we're going to hand you over to uh, the bonus stuff from our recording with Benjamin Moser. We hope you enjoyed. It should be uh, provocative. And uh, thank you very much for all your questions. We're sorry if we didn't get to yours. Um, feel free to give us a poke um, or a nudge or um, throw a brick through our metaphorical window if you feel angered by our ignorance of your question. Um, but yeah, thank you again. Keep them coming. Uh, and we will have another one of these, I think probably one more before the end of the year to round up the questions and comments we received the latter half of October, November, and December. Uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Oh, it's really fun. I, it's actually really rare that I get to talk about the things that I'm interested in. Um, I mean, I talk particularly Brazil versus the rest of the world. You know, when I talk to Brazilian audiences, I'm kind of talking into a Brazilian audience. Yeah. But but they don't really, they're not as interested in like Susan Sontag or what. I mean, some of them are, but, you know, it feels more like a minority thing. But to be able to talk about it like that is really fun. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I still, um, yeah, struggle with it, with the question in, in Brazil, because I think there's still... Uh, because of the force of tradition, effectively, um, it does uh, it does present us with a with a really different landscape, I guess, um, in thinking about you know questions of uh, of race, of sexuality, um, even you know questions of repression as well, um, for that matter, um, which which are really quite different. Um, and I think it it still does give kind of more life to um, Brazilian culture. On the other hand, I think maybe Bolsonaro and this whole moment will perhaps wipe that away because, um, you know, the, obviously Bolsonaro doesn't really represent tradition. It's a, it's kind of, it's just pure. Yeah, but he does kind of represent a tradition. I mean, when I look at that guy, like having spent a lot of time in Rio, that guy is a bichero. I mean, like he's just a <laughs> yeah. totally typical carioca to me. Yeah. Um, in a certain way. But you know, you but always also, have but he's, baja, but he's Baja da Tijuca. He's not uh, Ipanema, you know. Oh, of course. I mean, you can see his like churrasco and his. I mean, it's just like, yeah, of course. Like you can see like the women he finds attractive. I mean, it's just like a completely stereotypical thing in a certain way. But I think every country has its traditions that are positive and its traditions that are negative. In the United States, we have a great tradition. Um, culturally, intellectually, artistically, politically. And we also have the opposite. And um, 
it's always kind of that question of who's going to get the upper hand. I mean, I'm sort of rooting for Clarice Lispector and Machado de Assis. Like, who knows? I don't know how that's working out. <laughs> but, you know, it's not true that Brazil only has this tradition of, of um, repression and, and, and it actually has a long tradition of the opposite. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, trying to trying to kind of tease out those contradictions. I think that it's very hard actually to explain to to foreigners teasing out those contradictions specifically in Brazil, um, just because it's so convoluted and because I think in in a way like the lack of a revolutionary rupture at any point really in Brazilian history um, makes kind of I guess encourages way too many continuities which all kind of end up end up interweaving and it's very hard to un- tease those out really. I think that's absolutely the same problem in the United States, actually. I think that um, the rock like well, stability... you have the Civil War, you know, you have the American Yeah, Revolution, but the good so. guys won. You know yeah. what I mean? It was fine. It worked out. Um, you know, yeah, there's a Civil War and, and there's lots of revolutionary changes, but, and, and especially the change that nobody remembers because it's too long ago, but the change of the American Revolution is the real change. Um, now, now we're canceling, you know, George Walker. Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and people like that. But well, that, that's fact, funny. We, we just recorded an episode yesterday where we discussed this uh, a little bit in part, you know, and in reference also to the 1619 project. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, of, of in a way of, of this move to try to, can, like, for lack of a better word, cancel the American Revolution and look back to 1619 as the real founding moment. Um, it's preposterous. I, yeah. It, it, it absolutely is preposterous. It's. I, it's embarrassing, but I mean, I'm glad, I guess we're recording. And, you know, actually, if you want to say, quote me saying it, I mean, I don't know, but like, I would like to contextualize it, but it's something that um, it's very, very fashionable now. And it's actually so fashionable that you can't even really, um, you can't say anything about it or you subject yourself to critical violence. Yeah. And you can even lose your job about saying things like that. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people have objected to the 1619 thing. And it's not because people don't realize that there was slavery in the United States. I mean, surprisingly enough, people do know that. Um, people are aware of racism. And um, what's going to happen and what's already happening in publishing, for example, is that what we're doing now is including more upper middle class black people in leadership positions. Yeah, but I mean, that's, this is the that's this, the result. Yeah, it, it's it's a, not. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it for me, I think what it what it kind of signifies in a way is it, it's an attempt to to find closure for the American project, right? By uh, by doubling down on meritocracy, right? If we, if we only uh, allow right. you know everyone to have the same opportunities, um, you know, without any yeah, but that's not what they're saying. Well, that's not what they're saying. They're essentializing race in this way. I mean, that's the thing about the Vietnam. The Vietnamese woman is the only person who can read the Vietnamese woman's voice or whatever on the book. Like that's making race this immitigable construct that only um, certain people who check off certain boxes are allowed to even have a thought about anything. And, um, and it's the opposite of what literature traditionally did. Lit- literature traditionally took you into other people's lives. And that was the process is that you imagine other people's lives. You think, gosh, you know, what if I was a black woman in 1850? Well, I mean, needless to say, you're not a black woman in 1850, <laughs> but yeah. 
you know what I mean? But uh, now, like, that would be very. I mean, twenty twenty is also not a black woman in eighteen fifty. So I mean, no, I think I think I think that's that's the point, isn't it? That literature's power to to transport you and to give you that kind of radical empathy with with somebody's position that you can't possibly have occupied. Um, that's basically disregarded, or that's it's said to be impossible. But that, of course, is you know that's taking away quite a lot from from the traditional aims of literature. Well, how could you to, ever to write anything? You? How could you ever write anything that's not only about yourself? You know, if if that's, well, that's the, the other criteria. side of the coin is that we have a lot more uh, narcissistic also fiction, um, yeah. which is supposedly more authentic, but maybe more limited. Right. I mean, there's an idea that only your own story is interesting. I mean, it's very anti-intellectual and it's very anti-humane, uh, I think. Um, you know, it's something that I, I talk a lot about in Brazil traditionally. You know, I've always, people said, oh, why do you write about Brazil? And I said, well, why not? You know, um, I, I'm interested in Brazil. And um and that's true of other things too, but, but there's a real hesitation now. One fascinating thing, you know, I wrote a biography of Clarice Lispector uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And um, everybody said, isn't that cool that you're writing a book about a woman? Like everybody thought that was cool because men don't usually do that. And now it's the opposite. It's like, gosh, didn't you feel uncomfortable writing about a woman? It's like, <laughs> no, I didn't really, sorry. <laughs> So I think, I mean, I think there's an intellectual, and that's what my new book is about. I'm trying to write about what a new intellectual view of society could look like, because I feel like all the stuff we're doing is just rehashing stuff from the 60s. Absolutely. I mean, that we, sounds, yeah, that, that sounds, sounds fabulous. You have, to, you have to kind of give us a little preview. What uh, What is that actually about? I mean, I totally agree with the rehashing the 60s. It's... Uh, <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's a book about stereotypes, which is kind of funny because that's so not what you're supposed to do. Um, it's, it's about me to a certain extent. It's called A Prince of the Empire, which is sort of ironic, but sort of not ironic. I mean, I was brought up to be a prince of the empire. That's actually a title. If you know your Brazilian 19th century, um, it's taken from Joaquin Nabucco's book, Senador do Imperio which was about his father, um, Nabucco de Araújo, who was a famous figure of the Second Empire. Um, but a prince of the empire, I mean, I was brought up to take a position of eminence in the most opulent empire in the world. And that was my education. That was my expectation from everybody around me uh, and from myself. And halfway through my life, I realized that this was a crock of shit. And I started trying to, you know, this empire was just, you know, I mean, I have a lot of negative thoughts about it that don't have to do with the 1619 project. Um, I mean, about the country I come from. And, um, and so I'm trying to describe what we were like, because I feel like we as a generation are over. And I'm trying to sort of, we thought that everything was okay. We thought that everything was getting better. And so we were allowed to be intellectually flabby. 
we could just mm. kind of have another March on Washington, even though it's been 60 years mm. and you know the world is totally different than it was during the time of Martin Luther King. You know, you see that with Sontag too. The world was completely different. If you're talking about gay lives or you're talking about feminism, it is totally different from in her time. But nobody's really grappled with that to the extent that I think would be able to form a basis for, for real social change. I mean, if you look at, I don't know if you've not, if you hate yourself enough to be watching anything of the Democratic National Convention this week. <laughs> no, not quite enough, no. Follow, no. follow it on Twitter. <laughs> Save your, just get the distilled uh, terrible bits, not the, the full. The distilled is show. America will rise again or something. Or we are, we believe in freedom. I mean, it's just like, you just, I mean, I hate the Democratic Party. That's a different podcast. It would last 26 hours, I think. Uh, if you ever follow Glenn Greenwald or anybody like that, I mean, we're we're in a hundred percent agreement. On yeah, that. well, we've had him on the podcast before, actually, but we should not specifically to discuss the Democratic Party. Um, but we've had plenty of episodes uh, criticizing the Democrats. So yeah, no. Well, we're on well his idea, now. yeah, no, but I mean, his idea is that you you criticize your own family. You know, like it doesn't. There's no point in people like us criticizing. The Republicans. I mean, we already know that. That's just a lost cause. Um, but in fact, by criticizing people that might actually listen to you and actually, you know, you might actually have some kind of uh, way to make people who do vote for the Democrats. I mean, we have to vote for the Democrats. Um, we don't, I was telling this friend of mine in Rio the other day, God, this drives me insane. Um, he hates the PT hates them and everything. And I said, okay, fine. Like everything you say about them is right. What's the alternative? Oh, uh, José Serra or somebody. I was like, uh-huh. No. The alternative was Michel Temer and then Jair Bolsonaro. So that's the alternative. So if you hate Juma, fine. But like, so that's the thing that we're in. It's either, it's either right-wing corporatist incompetence or it's fascism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't buy the idea that Trump is is a is a fascist. Um, for me, he represents so much continuity. I mean, once you get below the spectacular surface, um, you know, as we were discussing before, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything that significantly there. I mean, the thing that's obviously worrying is obviously his coquetting with white nationalism. But beyond that, in substance, well, but they've um, always done that. Well, that's like we're talking about Reagan. They always did that. I mean, I come from the south of the United States. So, I mean, this was never deeply hidden away. Um, oh, indeed. You know, as it, as it wasn't in Britain, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I forgot the name of the gentleman from Canterbury. Phil. Phil. Um, are you still there? I am, yeah. Oh, um... yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's like the Daily Mail was always against immigrants. I mean, actually, even in the 30s, that's always been their thing. Um, yeah, but it's, um, I mean, it's also, again, it's very much a barometer of the changes you were talking about. Um, one thing that I noticed on the Daily Mail, for instance, is um, I think probably uh, when the story of uh, changing sexual mores comes to be written here, uh, the Daily Mail basically won, won it for gay marriage, I think. Um, well, and you know, because gay marriage becomes something that nobody actually really cares about anymore. I mean, no, I, quite so. But and it's also, I mean, I think the reason it won it, though, you know, kind of, it's a, 
you know, so the Daily Mail is still kind of um, definitely hostile to migration, hostile to refugees and everything else. But it, it's also, you know, it's shifted. It's, um, it's also a register of a certain kind of shift in social attitudes. Um, and well, to quite, speak and I to think just that, how completely different the world is. I mean, I hate to admit that I read the Daily Mail yesterday, but it's, it's, uh, I was on the road. That was my excuse. There it was. I was bored. Um, you know, what is the name of the most white nationalist minister in history ever? Home minister. Oh, you mean, uh, you mean our current one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if she's that white nationalist. Um, well, but I mean, the point is, like, if you look at her through a 60s idea of racial nationalism, it makes it hard when it's a Punjabi woman. No, absolutely. You know, and so I think there needs to be a new way of looking at these things that hasn't really emerged. No, but we, we, I mean, this is, uh, I agree with you entirely. And it's, um, I would go, I mean, I'd go further because I think the, seeing, you know, seeing the current government, so it's the most ethnically diverse cabinet the British British government has ever had. And seeing it as an exemplar of, um, you know, seeing it as a white supremacist government or a proto-fascist government or a hard right populist government, which is what many on the left have been wont to do, hobbles the left effectively. Um, well, because the left doesn't have any new ideas. Past. All they yes. do is say fascist and whatever, racist. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. I mean, fascism, that ended in 1945. Uh, and racism, you know, in the United States, this is what people forget with this thing, like, oh, you said something on Twitter or whatever. Like, racism was not a joke in the US, just like it wasn't a joke in South Africa. Um, you know, in Brazil though, it's different. It is different because Brazil didn't have legal discrimination in that way. It had cultural and, and social discrimination. And um, so trying to put these things into one, um, anyway, I'm trying to sort of, I'm trying to map the mind of my generation of, of um, basically upper and upper middle class Americans who were being, we were being trained to take the thing over, the whole glorious empire as it was breathing its last death rattle. But we didn't know that. <laughs> we were a little older by the time we figured that out and not everybody that's, figured it out. Yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. We were discussing yesterday about the, um, the British imperial bureaucrats and what happened to them as the, the British empire kind of... Um, uh, wrapped itself up and this this just seems like there could be an interesting parallel there um in terms of they were they the, the princes of the empire those colonial bu- bureaucrats sort, well, sort no, of I not mean, in exactly the same maybe way maybe lord mountain was or somebody like yeah. that he was actually already a prince of the empire so he didn't but no the british um that's different because the british colonial administration was actually for middle-class people. You know, it was an opportunity for a bright mm. kid. You could go to Darjeeling or somewhere and, you know, probably have a nicer life than in Canterbury. Um, more people to make your tea and 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 wave a feather at you or something. Um, there's, there's people like that in Canterbury today, I guess. <laughs> now, but now there's not more as, than... Not as many as there should be, perhaps. <laughs> well, but now, you know, now that, that class structure um, that was basically something for the colonies has been imported back to um, what used to be the first world, you know, if you're mm-hmm. talking like in, 
Vincent Bevins's terms, um, there's something about the idea that it's going to come home to roost, which I think Vincent speaks on so well. Um, there is, I mean, em, you know, empire coming home to roost. Um, there's, there's, there is um, elements of that in all sorts of kind of unanticipated ways. Um, but that kind of, um, and I don't know, I, I don't know if this is true of the states. My guess is it probably isn't. But that cadre of kind of um, elite imperial administrators were tremendously um, self-assured and yeah. you know genuinely capable as well. They were um, brilliant yeah. people. Yeah. They were brilliant. I always say there's nobody as smart as a smart American, and there's also dot 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 nobody as stupid as a stupid American. <laughs> but um, those but that's people. Gone. That's gone. Well, no, those people are brilliant. I mean, those people, I'll tell you where those people are. Those people are um, in the United States Army. They are in all the um, all the, the great corporations. They're in all of the, the universities, not at the, um, not at the sort of PC Twitter level, but, you know, the, the, the leading lights. Um, those people are still around and, and they are, they're explicitly brought up to take on that role in the world. Um, people don't say it as much. It's not like you are going to go to Bihar and become British resident or, you know, Beshawanaland is your future. Um, but there's something, you know, the, the, the rhetoric changed and the rhetoric, I think where you also see it is in the great philanthropic uh, foundations. Those are the people that would have been um, that would have been the viceroy of India. Instead, they run the Gates Foundation or something like that. And those people have more money and power than probably much any other um, private citizens anywhere. So, blah blah blah. I, I like that. No, no, I like that. I like that analogy uh, quite a lot. That, that's good. I might, I might even uh, use that. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll let you go. Thank you so much um, once again. It was so fun. Yeah, um, thank yeah, you. This was fun, and we need to have you back on if if you'll be up for it uh, to discuss uh, your new work. If you want to, uh, even if you're if you're up for kind of trying out ideas, indeed, um, you know, kind of in a preview of the thing or whatever. Um, more than welcome.